In our society today, oftentimes we become obsessed with the idea of greatness. We talk about great games. We talk about great athletes. We talk about great movies and great schools, and we talk about other things that are great. Oftentimes we talk in spiritual terms. And we talk about churches. And we talk about great churches. Have you ever thought about that concept? Have you ever given serious, really serious thought to the concept of a great church? Have you ever thought about what it takes to make a great church? The average person when you mention to them the idea of a great church, likely they are going to think of that great church as in terms of its size. Talking about a great church. Ooh, how big is it? How many members are there? If there's a long list of names, then it must be a great church. Well, it may be. Or it may not be. If you consider the subject of numbers and numbers alone, there's a whole lot of material in the Scriptures. Do you remember the story of Gideon from over in the book of Judges? Gideon started out with 32,000 men that rallied to his call to go fight against the Philistines. And when those 32,000 men rallied to Gideon's call to go fight against the Philistines, God said, Nope, that's too many. And so by various different means that God told him to use, that number of 32,000 was reduced until there were only 300 men, real men, men of courage, men of strength and devotion. And those 300 men went out with Gideon against the Philistines. And that Philistine army melted in the presence of the 300. All through the Scriptures, you'll find that the Lord has often used the few to conquer the many. The God of heaven believes in numbers and believes in large numbers only because He wants all men and all women to be saved. But in and of themselves, numbers do not spell greatness. Well, then there are those that think of greatness in terms of wealth. If the church is very wealthy, then it's a great church. And again, the answer to that is wrong. You go back and look at the early church. The early church was not wealthy. The New Testament church was generous. But a generous church is not necessarily a wealthy church. 
Generosity may be a quality of greatness. And it's great when wealth and generosity go hand in hand. But wealth in and of itself and wealth by itself does not mean greatness. And in thinking of a great church, some people think in terms of big buildings. Guess what? Fine buildings don't necessarily mean great churches. In the early days when the church began, there were no buildings at all. And yet with no building whatsoever, the Jerusalem church was one of the greatest churches that ever existed. Buildings may accompany a fine church. And buildings may accompany a great church. But strength does not necessarily lie in marble or in brick or in stone. Because the church is the people. And then there are others that think, well, a, a long and glorious history makes the church great. I remember when Brother So-and-so preached here and how big the crowds were. So? There are many that think a long and glorious history makes a great church. It doesn't. There are some that think prestige makes a great church. How many big names in the community are there on the church roll? How many bank presidents are there? How many men of high position in the community are members of the church? Just as the Lord does not measure a church by its marble, neither does He measure a church by the quality of society in which its members operate. So again, we're back to our original question, aren't we? What makes a great church? Write this down. It's not on the final, it's on the final exam. Great churches don't just accidentally and magically happen. Great churches are built. And great churches come about when individual members see the importance of the local church. Because the local church provides us with blessings that are available nowhere else. It's in the local church that we're provided the bond of fellowship. It's in the local church we have the strength of edification. The local church provides us with the joy of public corporate worship. The church somewhere can't do those things effectively. So we ought to be identified with a local congregation and keenly feel our personal responsibility to the local church. Great churches happen when every member of the church, every member of the church, that's me and that's you, Realize how important the church is. Writing to the church at Ephesus, Paul likened the church to a body. And in that context, every member is important. 
and they matter. If you go back to Nehemiah, when the walls of the city of Jerusalem had been burned and the gates destroyed and the city was in ruins and the walls were in ruins, Nehemiah was heartbroken. But he got the king to give him letters for safe passage and, and the king sent him back to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And if you read carefully Nehemiah chapter 3, it tells you who was laboring. And it says so-and-so was laboring and next to him was so-and-so and next to him was so-and-so and next to him was this one. Every person there labored side by side and shoulder to shoulder and each person pre repaired the section of the wall that was closest to their home. And each family of the Israelites had a place to fill, a part to play, and a work to do. Our text tells us in Acts chapter 2 of a great church in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, Jesus, when, that, when he was on that retreat with his apostles near the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus told Simon that day, he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, and I say unto you that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Then listen to it. And I'm going to give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven, whatsoever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. Jesus gave Peter the authority to preach that sermon on Pentecost. And there were men and women gathered there from every nation under a heaven. Peter stood up and preached, and he told them about David, that David was dead and buried, and his grave was still there. But Jesus Christ was dead and buried, and he rose again from the grave. And as Peter brought that sermon to a close, he said, This same Jesus you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. It says that when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. It cut them to the quick. You ever cut your finger and cut it to the quick? That's the way they felt that day. Peter cut them to the quick, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and your children, and all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. Now I'm going to start reading in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. 3,000 
3,000 souls responded that day. 3,000 were baptized. And those 3,000 continued steadfastly. That means all the time. In the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. Acts chapter 4. We read that after Peter preached in the temple from Solomon's porch, the number of men that believed was about 5,000. At that time, the population of Jerusalem was about 200,000 people. And history tells us that at one time, over half the city of Jerusalem were professing Christians. Over half of a city of 200,000 people were professing Christians. Now, don't get the idea that that church was without problems. You know, we've studied Paul's first Corinthian letter. That Corinthian church was filled with problems. And we're fixing to start Paul's second Corinthian letter in Bible class, and they still got problems. And this fledgling church in Jerusalem, it had its problems and its issues. It had its unruly members. There was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember hearing about them? They sold a piece of land. They said, laid the money at the apostles' feet. And they said, there it is. All of it. Is that all of it? It's all of it. Ananias was struck dead. And a little later, his wife came in. She said, oh, that's all the money we got. She was struck dead. The same men carried her out that carried her husband out. Was there sin that they didn't sell that piece of land? Was there sin that when they sold that piece of land, they didn't give all of it back to the church? That wasn't their sin. Their sin was the fact they lied to the Lord. They lied to the Holy Spirit about what it was that they had done. So they could try to appear more important in the eyes of the other saints. Then in chapter 6, we see another issue that comes rears its ugly head in that Jerusalem church. Because there's Hebrew widows and Grecian widows, and they're having a dispute because one group thinks the other group's getting more food in the daily distribution of groceries. That's the simplified version. And so the apostle said, look, we're not going to leave off preaching the word of God and wait on tables. So you appoint seven men over this. And so they appointed seven men as servants. We call them deacons. To oversee the food distribution among the widows there in the Jerusalem church. Then we even have another issue that comes up in Acts chapter 15. Because there's this ultra, ultra, ultra conservative group within the church that says that not only do you have to be baptized, you've got to be circumcised. God never said that. They're trying to bind things God never bound. They're trying to make rules God never made. And so they have a big council at Jerusalem. The apostles are there. Peter and James, the son of the Lord, and others are there to combat this issue that reared its head in the early church. But here's the thing. Whether it was Ananias and Sapphira, 
whether it was the widows that were being neglected in the daily food distribution, or whether it was one group wanting to bind things God had not bound. What you see in the book of Acts is that early church worked through its problems. You don't see folks running off somewhere else and pouting. You don't see folks saying, well, I didn't get in my way. I'm not coming back. They stayed there with the family of God. And they worked it out. They loved the Lord. They loved each other. And they preached the Word. They were actually accused of filling Jerusalem with their doctrine. When that statement's made in the book of Acts that they have filled Jerusalem with their doctrine, that wasn't a statement made by a church PR director. That wasn't something the local preacher in Jerusalem posted on his Facebook page to try to make things look really good. It was a statement made by the Sanhedrin the sworn enemy of the church, and they said, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Being made by the Sanhedrin, if anything, he would have done understatement. Now, do you remember what Jesus said prior to his ascension in Acts chapter 1? It's in verse 8. He said, you'll be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Our calling, my calling, your calling, our calling, is to begin at Jerusalem, and our Jerusalem is sin affected. And our calling is to begin right there and build a great church for the glory of God. Seven years after the great persecution that was brought about by the scattering of the church, there's another statement made in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. Christians of the first century were accused of turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. The church faced its problems then. It faced its internal challenges. From time to time, there were those that quit, deserted. Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary journey. And they were on that missionary journey and life got hard. One of Barnabas' relatives, a young man by the name of John Mark, was with him, but the mosquitoes were bad, and living conditions weren't that good. And John Mark said, I'm going home. Now, the Scripture does not tell us exactly why John Mark went home. Maybe he missed his bed. Maybe he missed Mama's cooking. But whatever it was, John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. Well, then it comes time for a second trip. Paul and Barnabas are planning a trip to, to go and visit the churches they established. And Barnabas says, well, I'm going to take John Mark with me. Paul said, no. I'm not going to take him with me. He deserted us. Paul was not going to take with them the man that deserted them on the first journey. Acts 15 tells us it was a very sharp contention between the two. The disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was so great that Barnabas took John Mark and went one direction, and Paul took Silas and went the other direction. Those two great preachers, Paul and Barnabas, parted company. 
I challenge you. If I can get somebody to loan me a hundred dollar bill, I'll bet you a hundred dollars. Or I'll give you a hundred dollars. If you can find anywhere in the scriptures where Paul or Barnabas either one talks trash about the other one after that part of time. They both went their separate ways preaching the gospel. They didn't write each other up in the brotherhood papers. They just preached the gospel. And neither one of them talked trash about the other one. Over the years in congregations all over this country of ours, there have been folks that felt little or no attachment or no responsibility, who've done like John Mark and abandoned the work, and they've given a myriad of excuses. Church is just too big. Well, the church is getting large enough to fit, suit my needs. Well, I felt like I was being pressured to do things I wasn't comfortable to do. That means that someone was encouraging them to grow spiritually. Well, I didn't feel I didn't like the way they spent the money. Behind all of these and a myriad of other excuses lies the selfishness of not wanting to put God first. I want us to build a great church, and we can do it. But what we've got to do right here, right now, resolve in our hearts that we realize it's not about me. It's not about my felt needs. It's not about my desires. It's not about what is in it for me. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord's work. And it's about saving lost souls. We can build a great church. We've got the beginnings of it right here. Some really great people. But maybe from time to time we we ought to take a personal inventory. We ought to look at ourselves. If every member of the church was just like me, what would the church be like? What kind of church would this be? How often would the building be dark because no one was needed? How often would the offering not be enough to meet expenses? How often would there not be anyone to prepare food for bereaved families or those in need? How often would the grocery truck stop and go away empty? I'm going to stop there, but I'm going to tell you something. And you know this. That list could go on for a while. Maybe from time to time we should just ask the question. Lord, is it I? When the church seems dead and the work's so slow, when attendance is off and the songs are too slow, when the prayers lack fervor and power and the minister's sermons seem stale and sour, 
Did you ever stop and look with a critical eye and ask the supreme question? Lord, is it I? Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And he said, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. That's my heart's desire for every person in the sound of my voice this morning. My prayer is that we'll all spend eternity together in heaven. That we'll be together around the throne of God singing praise throughout all ages world without end. My heart's desire is also for us to build a great church. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it because some folks are willing to give themselves heart and soul to the work. We're going to do it in spite of everything some who've been around will do to thwart our work. Now, I started this lesson with a question. What makes a great church? People who love the Lord. People who want to serve the Lord. People with a desire to live God's kind of life. People that realize it's not about them. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the song leader. It's about the Lord. And the eternal destiny of their soul. And the souls of others. The decisions to make are yours. The changes that might need to be made in your life are also yours. And if there are changes you need to make, you're invited to come as we stand and while we sing.